Welcome back to the Resiliency Ninja podcast. This is Allison Graham. And today I have someone who is equally passionate about the topic of resilience as I am as the Resiliency Ninja. She is the founder of the Academy of Resilience. She is on the other side of the world, hanging out in Bradbury, Australia. Stacey Kopas is my guest today. How are you? I'm fabulous. Thanks. And yourself? Wonderful. So I'm really excited to have you on. I actually reached out to Stacy just randomly because she is the author of the book, How to Be Resilient. And I, of course, my book is, you know, my subtitle is How to Be Resilient When Life Sucks. And I thought, well, she and I must have something in common. And then I started to read and watch and look at a lot of her work and a lot of our our approaches are the same and um what i she's got a fascinating story though that i think that the resiliency ninja listeners need to hear and learn from uh she has some cool like the typical stuff right like she facilitates with the big companies but i want to share with you a couple other things she has starred in a feature film and yet has no acting experience she has volunteered in solomon islands you're gonna have to talk about that. I competed at a national level in athletics and 22 years on the sideline before she took the plunge to do that. And she also ran for parliament in 2007, which those of you who know my backstory know I also did too. So <laughs> we, yes, we have, talk about this. <laughs> we have so much in common. This is oh, crazy. We, it, we do. And you know what? We were just talking offline where... I had, uh, so Stacey's actually a very prominent speaker across Australia and people know her very well in the resiliency space. And I had been offered a, a role to come over and speak in Australia, but it was one gig. It was very short and I turned it down because of the travel and you had said the same thing, right? Like coming over here to Canada would be really difficult. So uh, maybe, where should we start? Should we start with where you at, you're at in your business? That's easy. Let's just start there, unpack what you're doing, and then uh, we'll go back into your backstory and sort of some of your, your philosophies. Okay, I'm glad you decided on that because otherwise, it's always like, where do we just start? Do we start now? Do we start at the beginning? Um, it doesn't really matter, I guess, but it's just making that decision, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm glad you made it. Um, so yeah, where I am now, um, I founded the Academy of Resilience. Uh, I left my last job in employee land seven years ago to do that. Um, and the business has evolved to there. It started out just doing keynote speaking, um, but that's then evolved into publishing the book, How to Be Resilient, uh, doing some online programs, doing some one-on-one -on -one coaching, running some workshops um, and doing that sort of stuff as well. So it's been, it's been great. And I think as much most people that go into business, uh, that journey has been being able to really clarify you know, the, the messaging and also clarifying who it's for um, because particularly resilience, as, as you would know, it's it's useful for everybody no right. matter what point in their life they're in. And so I did, I've definitely found myself pulled into many different directions. Um, but what I've really settled on and what I, what I absolutely love doing is working with leaders in business and then just helping them to shift the way they perceive and they respond to adversity and change. And the reason I settled on leaders in business is I really feel that, you know, strong, thriving businesses with 
you know, valued, engaged employees is really the centrepiece of strong communities and strong families. So I feel that by working with the leaders in, in business, then I can sort of be that pebble in the pond and then they then spread the message via what they've worked with with me rather than me particularly working with their teenagers and stuff like that, which is one of the areas I get asked to work in a lot, which I've realised is not my, it's not my best value. So, yeah, working with leaders has been, uh, has been amazing and it's going really well. Awesome. And so when you say working in business, so do you like, like big business, medium-sized business or like small business with, say, somebody who had 20 people on their team? It's varied a lot. Um, mostly it's with the sort of medium to large business and working with government departments as well. Um, but the, the key theme through all of them is that they're experiencing, you know, rapid and constant change and that their teams aren't really aren't really faring very well with it. Um, so it's helping them to actually really put put some stuff into perspective, but then also just give them some really, really practical tools that they can use to build their resilience and not just cope, but how they can actually really look at how they can find the opportunities in it and actually get quite excited about the possibilities rather than being feeling that they're um, just being taken along and they have no control in the situation. So is resilience something that you had to learn and master or was it innate in you? Oh, look, I feel that there may have been, I think probably the the one thing that I had from a very early age was a really strong competitive instinct. Mm. So I've always been competitive, but along along the way, definitely um, resilience is something that I felt probably I didn't have a lot of, um, particularly at some of the most challenging times in my life and realised that that did come over time. Um, And it wasn't really until I had other people actually use the word resilience in the context to my own journey that it was never a word I've used. So I'd never even put that together. So, and it wasn't until having those outside eyes that had suggested that resilience was actually the I guess the best description that I then sort of reverse engineered my journey and then go, okay, well, how did I develop that resilience? What did it look like? What were the things that I did? Right. And then was able to see that it was something that I had learned. Uh, and, and then because I had learned it, it was something that could be taught as well. Right. Exactly. And I know in your book, so uh, you tell your story and I, it's very gripping. I do want to dive into that. But in terms of how you define resilience, and you start by saying everybody has, like, I mean, it is, everybody has a different definition, a bit of resilience. But you say, I believe it is the ability to go farther than you were before you were faced with the challenge that required your resilience to overcome it. It is an opportunity to grow, learn, and adapt to actually leverage the challenge and adversity into a more positive outcome. That's yeah. cool. Thank I like you. It. Yeah. Yeah. And re- yeah, because I really yeah. feel that resilience, and I guess technically, and you know, textbook definitions, resilience is about coping. But I really felt that that really sells it short. I agree. There's so much more than just like I'm going to cope, and cope almost feels very defeatist to me. Agreed. Right. It's like I'm just getting by. I'm doing enough. 
And I think that's where a lot of the languaging around resilience really frustrates me. So I don't know if anybody, when you were, well, you, you sort of started your journey very early in your years, right? You were 12 when you had your accident, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so maybe it didn't bother you, but I, I just had this in the podcast that'll be going out before you, but pacing, people tell you to pace. Ah, does that ever bug you too? Like it bugs me. Does it bug you? Uh, look, I, I, it does because I really feel that it's such an individual thing. Um, it's so relative and it's also when I've, I've really, I've had issues with people that go, oh, look, why are you being so hard on yourself? Like you're doing so well when I know, and it's not just being a, you know, massively high achiever I know that I haven't done a fraction of what I could have done I know that I've wasted a hell of a lot of time um so for someone outside it looks like you are moving at this fast pace and they're like oh look just take your time do whatever don't be so hard on yourself but personally I know that I'm like I am so far behind the eight ball and I've procrastinated massively I've just dawdled along and yeah and then so I do take exception to other people's perceptions of what pacing is and ultimately it's a projection of the pacing they believe that they would actually take if they were doing a similar thing right and so their belief thing now how do you um with that wasted time because you you have it, I have it, we all have it, every listener has it, and there's a judgment level that can go with it. How do you manage that judgment, that self-judgment? And how do you balance, two questions in one, how do you balance the judgment of it wasting time versus recovery, healing, important to relax time? How do you identify the two? Yeah, look, I think they're they're definitely two different things um, because there's definitely times where it is important just to relax and to just, we have to make the space to just be, to just think, to just feel Um, because if we are going too fast and we don't stop to allow that space, then we can't be creative, we can't do new things and we, as I said, we can't heal and we, um, you know, you do have a tendency to potentially get burnt out. Um, the thing that I found the most valuable when I do get in that, I do find that self-judgment coming in going, oh, geez, I just wasted my day. Um, I reframe it in saying I could have done something different, but I didn't. It's it's just, it was a choice I made at the time. But then I also get a pen and paper out and I write down all the things I did do. Mm. Because we can be so hard on what we didn't do, but then when we actually take a pen and paper out and you write a list of what you actually did get done, you're like, oh, it wasn't that bad after all. <laughs> well, and sometimes it's because we're living in the busy work as opposed to the hugely valuable and important work, but sometimes this other stuff just has to get done too. And maybe some days nothing got done. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. And and that's okay. It's as long as we don't sort of we don't end up doing that every day and making no progress because that becomes an issue. Yes. Um, but, you know, if it's just the odd couple of hours here or there and ultimately you, you're making progress towards what you want to get done, you're not, um, you're not constantly making excuses for why you haven't, uh, you haven't fulfilled on things that you said you were going to do, then I think it's okay to just 
really check in with how we how we're feeling at the time and if we do need to take a couple of hours just to stare into space then so be it now was it your competitive nature that got you uh into the feature film with no acting experience how did that happen that had nothing to do with that um (laughs) It was, it was really fascinating because it was, it was it, in hindsight, it looked like manifesting on steroids. It was, it was oh, about 18 months ago and it was the end of 2000 and what was that? 17, 17, 16, 16. And I was thinking about, I'm really big on themes for the, for years rather than like one big goal. I like themes. So I'd actually sat and spent a couple of hours and I'd written up a little bit of a manifesto for, for 2017. And I decided that my theme for the year was creation because I realised I was, I consumed a lot of stuff. Like I, I'm just a, you know, insatiable learner and I found I wasn't creating enough stuff. So my idea was about creating more stuff in 2017. Within 24 hours, I got a message on LinkedIn completely out of the blue, cold messaged. I had no even mutual connection with this person who was a director and who said, oh, I'm directing this, you know, low budget indie feature film in Sydney and we're looking for a lead actress who uses a wheelchair. Might this be something that could be up your alley? (laughs) And I'm like, 24 hours. It's like, wow, that really fits the bill of creation, doesn't it? And so first of all, of course, I did the reverse stalk to go, is this dodgy? And saw that this person was absolutely legit. So I messaged her back and I said, uh, never really thought about this, but happy to have a conversation. And we end up having a conversation. And I said to her, I said, look, um, I've never done anything like this before. I might be completely terrible in front of a camera. And she goes, oh, no, I've looked at some of your YouTube stuff. <laughs> and then, you know, I ended up meeting with the writer and the other producers and stuff and they offered me the role and it petrified me, um, particularly having a lead role when everybody else was very experienced. I felt at first I was like, yes, because my whole approach is yes and figure it out later. And then once they started announcing the cast and putting posts out on Facebook and stuff, then I freaked out. Um, and I just felt this ama- this incredible pressure, but I just trusted in the process and trusted that they would teach me what I needed to know. Um, so and, is it yeah. hard to act? Because I've always wondered, like I once did a... Um like just a, a fun, they brought all the like community leaders together and put us in theater. And, you know, you have three lines and people clap for you because you're on stage and they know your name, right? Like that, that's as good as acting I've ever done. And I don't know about like real acting. I've always wondered, like, is it hard? It was an incredible lesson in self-awareness. So when I was getting some of the coaching, there was little things that, so my, my coach, we would run lines and she would, so she would had a camera and she was filming us running lines. And then she just started asking me questions about my life, about personal stuff. And then she got me to watch them back and said, look, look at the difference in your facial expressions when you're acting versus when you're just conversing with somebody because it's really difficult when you know exactly what the next person's going to say and it's how do you have a natural reaction to something that you're expecting 
So that was really interesting. And so then she would say, okay, let's run these lines again and don't move your eyebrows this time. Because when you and I are having a conversation now, like we're not raising our eyebrows and doing oh, all these things. Oh, I do things. all the time. I, yeah. I'm an eyebrow raiser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when you're actually acting, like you would find it interesting. If you do that normally, like you would probably do it 10 times okay. more. Yeah. And so I didn't realize like how overly expressive I was doing in my face. And so that was, that was, that was really interesting just to get that into um, into context and and also because it was a feature film um, I blink a lot I have dry eyes and I blink a lot and that's one thing that's a big no-no for big screen stuff because if it looks like if you're blinking a lot then it looks like you um, are untrustworthy or something right. and yeah so I had to really learn how to not blink as much because wow. it's magnified on this huge screen every little movement is magnified so that was fascinating Crazy. Yeah, I guess yeah. it would be, right? Because your eyes are like the size of the screen. <laughs> it was huge. Just like it was looking huge. at somebody. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so from that, I, every, um, once I started that process, every time I go to it, I started going, because I do go to a lot of movies, I watch them very differently. Um, but yeah, I ended up sitting in a theatre watching a premiere of the film and like I was never been more probably anxious or self-conscious in my entire life, but I was also incredibly proud that I actually did it. I followed through on it. I don't think I completely screwed it up. Um, I think I did all right and it was fun, but it's not something that I, you know, really, I decided afterwards, I'm like, Oh, like I was told, look, you, I had the potential to do something with it, but I realized how much effort it went into being someone else when I've actually got a really good gig just being me. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Um, for sure. And so other things you've done, what took you 22 years on the sidelines before you decided to go into the Paralympics and actually compete? Yeah. Athletics, sorry. Yeah. I didn't get that, didn't get that far to the Paralympics, but yeah, I, um, before I had my injury at 12, I was, I was a competitive athlete. So I played softball, I played soccer, I was a rep runner every distance from the 100 metres right through to the cross country. And then after I had my injury, I made a pact with my 12-year-old self that I was never going to play sport again because I couldn't play it like I used to. And Yeah. And then a couple of times in my teens, I tried a couple of things, more got pushed into trying things. And I was just so embarrassed by how slow and uncoordinated I was that I kept it up until... Yeah, a couple of days after my 34th birthday, I had this urge that came from who knows where that just said, Stace, it's time to get fit. And that led me down this process of ending up at a Paralympic talent search, discovering that they saw I had ability. And then I ended up taking up competitive athletics Um, at 34 years old, having not competed in 22 years. uh, I won a state title. I won a silver medal at nationals, uh, throwing discus left-handed the craziest stuff that's happened along the way. Um, and then I ended up doing some track racing and I haven't competed in three years now, but I'm, I sort of feel I've still got a bit of unfinished business. So trying to get this old body back into shape and have another crack at it over the next 12 months. Very cool. So now being in a wheelchair, cause I've not had that experience and God willing, it's not something that I'll have to face in my life. Um, you've turned it into a real positive. You have found a way but before we get into that, just the practicality of it, how do you stay in shape? 
Yeah, it's interesting because I, in that sort of 22 years that I wasn't doing anything, I didn't even, I think I saw a physio once a month. Um, I didn't do any exercise. I didn't go to the gym, but it's just the effort of everything takes so much energy. So every time I get in and out of bed, every time I go to the bathroom, every time I even move around, I, I, I just, I use so much energy. So I'm really lucky that I've ended up staying incredibly lean, right? Um, even though I love my food, um, because I'm just, yeah, everything, everything just takes so much work. And so it's good in a way. And so some people say to me, why don't you get an electric wheelchair? And I'm like, cause I'll get fat. So, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. That's a fair enough reason. I guess it would be a lot of work. So when you travel or have to go long distances, how do you compensate for that? You just work that much harder? Um, yeah, look, it depends on, um, like what, what sort of travel I'm doing. So, um, yeah, if I've got to go a really long distance and I'll take someone with me to give okay. me a hand, it's just, um, you know, it's just too much. Or I'm actually in the process of um, getting like a little motor attachment for um, for my chair. So when I, am, when I am needing to travel really long distances, then I can just use it then rather than, um, you know, using an electric one all the time. And um, yeah, so I'm really excited to get that. And that's sort of driven like, by a little Apple watch kind of thing. It's really, I just love technology and how cool some of this stuff is. So, um, you know, that's, that's been cool, but you know, when I've had to travel really long distances, like flying is just, uh, I'm not scared of flying. It's just totally inconvenient and uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, it would be. Well, just even the airplane is not probably that wheelchair friendly, is it? No, well, I've got to get stuck onto one of their little tiny chairs that actually fits up the aisle because the aisle is so tiny. And then once you're in your chair, you're stuck in your chair. So it's one of those things that I, um, you know, the longest I've sort of flown is between Australia and Singapore, which is like eight hours on the plane. Um, but yeah, it's just not comfortable because, you know, you're kind of stuck, you can't move. Um, most of the planes don't have accessible bathrooms on them, anything like that. So, you know, it's it's probably the, the, the worst for travelling. So, you know, anywhere like that I can catch a train or do something like that, then I'll take that over a plane any day. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know what, I guess if you don't think about it, you wouldn't realize, but now that I am thinking about it, I would see that as horribly inconsiderate. I don't know if that's the right word, but they haven't designed it particularly well to be accessible. No, no. Even some of the newer planes are getting better, oh, but good. but still, um, like I still haven't been on one that, um, you know, that has had you know, a bathroom that I've been able to get into. And even if they do have a bathroom that you, you can get into, you still have to use one of their tiny little chairs to get into it, which, um, you know, doesn't have wheels that you can push yourself or anything like that. So it's just, actually, I saw um, someone shared a meme with me the other day and it had an image of Hannibal Lecter um, strapped into, you know, the visual where he's getting wheeled into something and he's strapped onto um, like a, like a trolley thing and it's like what every wheelchair user feels like when they're getting put on an aeroplane oh, no. <laughs> and I thought it was just the best visual that I've ever been able to see about what it actually feels like <laughs> what it's actually like so 
when the okay so maybe tell uh the listeners out there what happened it was uh well i'll let you tell the story yeah so back when i was 12 years old which was yeah 28 years now i'm in my um celebrating my festival of 40 at the moment i've decided it's a year-long celebration fantastic turned 40 late last year which is exciting and so yeah back at 12 i was actually cooling off in a relative's backyard swimming pool with my younger brother who was 10 and a couple of other boys his age and um this was a relatives place I'd been to before and I'd used this I'd swum in this pool um, a lot so it wasn't something that was unfamiliar to me Um, but what I did um, which was what I did every time I went over there was I just I just kept climbing up on the edge of the pool and diving in just over and over and over again and it was just an above ground pool so it you know definitely wasn't deep enough to be diving into but I was doing just you know your shallow dives but there was one particular time where I ended up standing on the edge of the pool thinking I'm splashing too much as I dive in. And so I stood there for a moment thinking, how can I dive in without splashing so much? So I thought if I kept my legs straight and kept my feet together, then in theory, then I would dive in without splashing so much. So I thought, great, that's what I'm going to do. And so I took a deep breath and I dived in. And it felt like any other dive that I did before until I went to try and swim up to the surface and I I realised I couldn't move. So I was conscious, um, holding my breath, unable to move. I didn't feel any pain, just I couldn't move. And so I'm desperately thinking, how can I get my brother um, to help me? But he thought I was just mucking around. So he didn't do anything. And so eventually I had to give in and just breathe in. And then as my lungs filled with water, I, I blacked out. And eventually he realised that I wasn't mucking around. And then he, he did end up pulling me out of the pool and raising the alarm for help. And so I ended up getting taken to a local hospital via ambulance. And then I got um, helicopter airlifted to a second hospital and then I ended up at a third hospital um, and it was there in intensive care later that night that I had a doctor, you know, come and tell me that I actually broke my neck and drowned and that, yeah, I'd never walk again. So it literally felt like my life was over in that moment. Of course it would. What a tragedy. And as a child, like that must have been so hard to comprehend the severity of it. You wouldn't know or did you know? Like what was your thinking? Yeah, look, I was a I was a pretty mature twelve year old, and so yeah, it it, it did hit me. Because and for me, what struck me more than anything is like I'm an athlete, um, and all I wanted to do with my life was be a vet. So that was my thing, and I just it was the end of end of primary school for me because uh, this was in December, and I'd already been accepted into a you know selective agricultural high school. So all of my plans that I had for my life were all on track. And then suddenly I couldn't run, let like I couldn't walk, let alone run. Um, I couldn't I couldn't be a vet. Um, and then it was like, well, what's the point? Kind of thing. So. I really struggled for many, many years to go, well, what am I going to do with my life? I really don't want to, you know, don't, didn't want to be there at all. And then, um, so not being able to do all those things. So yeah, it was definitely, you know, super, super challenging time. 
And when was the turning point that you said, no, I'm going to turn this adversity, it's a true adversity, into a positive? I'm going to uh, embrace it. Actually, you had a phraseology I saw you use somewhere, um, turn it into an asset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, it was sort of getting towards the end shift started to happen probably towards the end of high school where I was like, Oh, I've got to get out of this headspace. Um, but it wasn't until I was probably into my early twenties that that was when I truly began to shift the way that I looked at it. And I was, I looked at it and I look, I looked at it and I was like, I'm grateful that this happened. I'm grateful for the opportunities that it's given me. Um, and most people go, how on earth can, you know, ending up a quadriplegic and needing a wheelchair for the rest of your life be positive. Um, but I realised that it was. And, and I look back and can see with absolute certainty that, you know, you touched on some of the crazy things that I've been able to do with my life. And had my life have taken the path that I'd planned it, I would not have done any of those things. So, you know, it's, it's changed things in a way that's been, it has been incredibly positive for me, but that's because I've chosen it to be. And do you think that that's the resistance for other people that they're not choosing to see the asset in an adversity? Yeah, look, for me, I look at it all and I go, look, it did come down to a choice. Um, And people sometimes go, look, it's not that simple. And I'm like, well, actually it is. But it's easier to actually blame. It's easier to make excuses than it is to actually say, you know what, I'm going to choose the other path that is more positive, more empowering. Yes, it's challenging, um, but it, it's, it's about taking that responsibility and going, look, I can't change what has happened before this moment in time, but you have complete control over what you do with this point forward. And that is just an incredibly empowering thing to do but a lot of people just think it's easier just to, as I said, blame the world and get sucked up in the entitlement mentality. And, and I, that, that's probably you know, one of my most frustrating things is when I see people um, just you know, wanting to point the finger at everybody else and think the world owes them a favour when, in fact, I just feel that we owe the world you know, an incredibly, um, we ing- oh, incredibly for what we have and where we are. It takes some time and self-awareness, though, I think, to get to the point where you recognize that you're actually stuck in that negative vortex. Mm. Right? Like, I think some of these people who say, well, that sounds easy. Oh, sure. It works for you, but doesn't work for me. I don't even think they realize that they're in a soundtrack of negativity and blame and hating on the world. Yeah. Um, and often that's because of the people they surround themselves with as well, mm, um, because they're surrounded by similar people. Um, so they've probably not had that contrast and they've not actually had someone challenge them either to turn around and go, well, yeah, okay, you've found yourself in this place, but um, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> right. Like, like uh, attracts like, right. I remember uh, one of my most vivid stories when I was early in my pain journey uh, and I had a surgery that went wrong and they just hurt nerves. Right. So it's minus pain, but 
I was sitting at the hospital around a big, long boardroom table, and we all had those rolly chairs, and it was this pain support group. And I went in there, guns ablazing, excited, enthusiastic, going, oh my God, I'm going to meet people who are going to tell me how I can still like live a full life with this pain, right? I was all excited. And I get in there and they're like, okay, you need to give up this happy shit. <laughs> they're like, you need to understand you're never going to work full time again. You're never going to, you know, they named off a few other things that I would never do again. And I remember pushing my chair back and I, I rolled because, <laughs> you know, it's a hospital. So it's a, you know, linoleum and I rolled too far back and I just said F you. And I got really angry and I left. But what I realized in hindsight of that is that they had become each other's people. Yes. So they were all surrounding each other and, and had adopted a, a group mentality. And it was such a, a, a spotlight on the importance of who we spend our time with. Absolutely. And it becomes part of their identity yes. then is that. And it's like, it's, it's like often when people get a diagnosis of some description, it's, it's like this label that becomes their identity, then that becomes their reason slash excuse for why they are the way, the way they are and the, why they behave the way they do. And I just think it's such a cop-out. It is a cop-out. But is it because society hasn't taught people how to think this way or how to be resilient or how, how to be positive or is it that they're just being lazy and making the choice? I mean, I don't know. I'm asking you your opinion. Yeah, look, I've, I'd say I feel a lot of it does come down to um, the people that are around us, but also too, like, I think one of the biggest um, negative influences in most people's life is the media. And that's something that I have disconnected from as much as I possibly can, because it's all about bad news and blame and, you know, big businesses ripping you off and be scared of your neighbour because they could be a terrorist and all of that stuff. And it's like, well, when you start to get people in that mindset that, oh, my God, the world is terrible and it's out to get me and I need to be afraid, then people sort of shrink into that. And then, of course, they're going to engage more than that with, with, with that. They identify with that. Then they also then collectively group with people who are similar to them. Um, and, and, again, we, we get what we look for. So, of course, they see more of that, whereas someone like you or I, because we've conditioned ourselves to look for the positive and that we do have that outlook, then we filter out a lot of that stuff more than most people would. And we actually see the bright spots. We see the someone that's doing something positive and we identify more with that. Which is really neat that you're saying about the news and, and separating from it because you did run for politics. So I'm guessing at some point the news was a very integral part of your life. So what oh. was that decision? What was that like? And then I wanted to, well, we'll separate and we'll talk about the aftermath and why you never want to do it again. Okay. So, so the why I did it in the first place. Yeah. So yeah, I was in my twenties at the time and I was very idealistic and saw the world quite black and white as we do back then. 
but it was driven from a desire to make a difference. That was my sole purpose in doing that. And at the time I felt that the best way to make a difference was to change policy and things like that. So yeah, I did. And I didn't, I had nothing to do with politics before that. I had no one around me that was involved in politics. It was just this, I saw again through the media and through stuff like that, that I saw that's how change happened. So I then looked at, at the time, I looked at the two major parties in Australia and I thought, who do I identify most with? And then I actually just reached out online and asked how I could get involved. (laughs) And I ended up like secretary of everything. I ended up on the youth councils, on the women's councils. I ran for my local government. And then, yeah, in 2007, I ran for a state a state seat. Um, Role of the media was fascinating. When I was endorsed as a candidate, um, the local paper came and did a story, come and took a photo, you know, when I was at work and did an interview. And then when the paper got delivered the next week, the front page was a full page story about me with a headline that said impossible. (laughs) (laughs) No, their headline was what? Impossible. Impossible with a big photo of me basically saying I'd been announced as the candidate. Oh my God. So like it can't be true kind of idea is what they're saying. Or yeah, or or like tell her she's dreaming type of thing. Oh like you're never gonna win, lady. Yeah. Oh look at it was, you know, just statistically, yeah, it was and I, I knew that that was that was it, but like hang on. Part of me was like would would they have done that the same had it been a male candidate? I do question that. I question that wholeheartedly, um, I would. Yeah, so I felt that that potentially was um, another thing. Um, or and I were a 55-year-old woman. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Instead of a um, 20-something, um, non-university educated, disabled woman, who was living in public housing at the time, even right. though I had a, even though I had a job, I was living in public housing. So I was everything that they would never have expected this party to have a candidate who fit right. that bill. So yeah, so that was really fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, the, the process of it was interesting. Uh, I had no resources. I was working full time. Um, yeah, I found it. I think it, it's particularly with. I, I, it would have been even harder had it been now because back then we social media wasn't huge. Right. We didn't have the 24-7 news cycle. So, But I do remember that I knew that the week before, the week before um, it was to be announced I was a candidate, I went and had one huge night, night out with my friends because I thought I'm not going to be able to do this anymore because, again, that whole thing about people trying to trip you up and trying to get you to make mistakes or trying to contradict yourself. Um, And I just thought it wasn't productive. And so after the whole process and the election was done and dusted, um, I still was going to, I still was keen to be involved. Um, But I also got really disillusioned by how much energy was wasted um, internally fighting with each other within the party rather than actually being constructive about making change and putting forward policy. Right. Um, And it was a a move into state, that I tried to then pick up politics when I moved into state, but it's very difficult when you're not someone that's grown up in an area. And then I realised that 
I left that behind and I realized that, you know, I could make a difference in other ways. And now I realize that we can actually probably have more influence on political stuff from outside of the system than we can by actually being a politician. 100%. And that was my realization in the end as well. Mine was, I was actually quite involved in politics and had been on the provincial executive, which would be our state-ish, right? Like, so you're a state, I'm province. Yeah. And chose to run right after my surgery, but mainly because I was pissed off about the system and a whole bunch of stuff happened when I had my surgery and obviously it was botched, et cetera. So, you know, people say to me, why did you run for politics? And I jokingly would say, well, because I was on Percocets, right? Like I was, <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly think that might be the only reason. No, I'm teasing. I always yeah. wanted to run. I was in my early thirties when it happened. And um, what I had the hardest time with was twofold. One, every time you spoke with somebody, the only issue, like there are 10,000 issues and the only issue they care about is the one that they care about. And they think it's the only one. Mm -hmm. And I have such an empathetic nature that I desperately wanted to help solve every one of those. And then that was just exhausting. And I, such a blessing that we didn't win. And here I am, never say never, but I don't think it's ever anything I want to do again. So I understand. Yeah, I definitely feel, I feel the same way um, that I've, I've, I've said never the whole time, but you know, perhaps when, you know, maybe when I'm 60 or something and I've achieved everything that I really feel that I've set out to achieve, um, you know, maybe that might be something that may get revisited, but you know, every time there's an election, I get phone calls and messages and anytime that anyone knows that I've had anything to do with politics, I'm like, we need people like you. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't do it. No, just, can't do I it. Can, I cannot and will not do it. <laughs> well, and it, it's interesting because it, uh, you know, doing the work that we do, you can touch more lives. Like when you go into work with a, um, I call it the resiliency ninja ripple effect, right? So when yeah. you can change the way a leader shows up, that influences everybody's day. Absolutely. Right. And you can't do that (laughs) as a politician. No, absolutely not. Um, And that's what I I feel like we're we're definitely on the same page there and particularly in the way that we approach what we do and particularly focusing on working on leaders in in organisations because, you know, they they do and, and, and actually showing them the responsibility they have as a leader and even just the slight things they can do that actually impact people's lives. And then those people then take that outside back into their communities and their families. Um, And so that's where I feel that we can have really, really positive change. And also, you know, potentially over time is some social change as well. I feel that, you know, through businesses and also through storytelling, I think, you know, storytelling, whether it be through movies, whether it be through comedy, whether it be through stuff like that, we can really start to, um, you know, really tell some stories and um, and plant some messages that can really start to shift the way people um, behave and people, the way people interact with each other as well. 100%. I'm just looking for your book here. Um, I know one of your key I don't know what we're going to call it, like your key pillars or your key Mm -hmm. key planks that you talk about is responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really feel that that's the most important part of it, but it's also probably the hardest to address because, you know, as humans, we're wired to look for 
uh, danger, we're wired to look for problems. And so when things don't, things don't go to plan, then we look for something or someone to blame. And so it is actually then taking that back and taking personal responsibility for the experience we have and the impact that our behavior has on others as well. Right. Wild. Yeah, very cool. Okay. At the end of every one of the Resiliency Ninja podcasts, I ask five questions. We call them the fast five questions that aren't that fast. <laughs> okay. So is it, is it a challenge for me to see how fast I can do the fast five? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. See, uh, com- the competitiveness coming out of me again. Okay. Well done. Well, we can try. No, I think it's more because we end up chatting about them and they were intended to be fast five and I only have one word document that has it. So <laughs> I just use it for every interview and I read it. And anyway, so that's what happened. Okay. So uh, first one is a book that changed your life. Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill, and I'm sure that's a common one that people come up with, but it really challenged so much of the way that I think and the way that I behave. Um, Particularly, there was a couple of things in there. One of them was about two things. There was about mastery of procrastination. Um, Because I quite proudly used to say I was the queen of procrastination. And then when I realized, I'm like, oh my goodness. And and I've actually touched on that in my book too. Uh, The other one was about the um, the power of um, making quick decisions. That was something that was powerful for me. I used to just um, blame the fact that I'm a Libran for the fact that I am terrible at making decisions. Um, And once I realized that how important it was to actually make quick decisions, realize that you can, you can pivot if you need to, but actually just make decisions and run with them, um, how powerful that was. And so, yeah, that actually probably was probably the book that inspired me to actually then go out and write a book as well. Wow. Okay. So very powerful. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And I have read that several times over the course of my youth, not my youth. I sort of started reading self-help books around 18, 19 and have read them. I, I need a lot of help. You see, it's been a long journey. And oh I read goodness. that one. I've come back to it several times. So, uh, and probably a reminder for me to read it again. I'm I'm due for a reread too. (laughs) Yeah, definitely one that you can reread over and again. A time in your career when you pushed through fear. Oh, geez. Every time I get on stage. (laughs) Are you, do you not like speaking or you love it? Oh, no, I love it. There's always that moment before every gig and it's, you know, it's such a small, it's a small moment now where you do have that moment where you're petrified that you're going to screw it up, that they're going to hate it, that just, yeah, that you're going to do something stupid and, or, you know, that you, I don't know, that you just think that something's going to go wrong. Um, and, but I shift it very quickly and realizing that it's a, you know, it's certainly a natural um, feeling and embracing embracing that nervous energy and realizing that um, again fear and excitement kind of feel the same. What is it? Excitement's just fear with I'm um, sorry, fear's just excitement without the breath. Right. Exactly. And um it's interesting because I have fallen off stages. I have done all those things that embarrass myself. And in my first book, which was from business cards to business relationships, I actually have a chapter on recovering from embarrassing moments. I had to figure out a way to get through those. So I totally get what you're saying. And you can flip it to be excitement as opposed to fear. 
And absolutely. So the natural, I always figure the, the speaking is not dissimilar to our ancestors being on the firing line. Pretty much. Right. Like if you're in the front of the room and people like our, our instincts, like our ancestry is that's probably in our DNA of why it's the fear. That's my theory. Anyway, I have, I have absolutely no scientific proof, but that's what it I sounds, think. It's, it sounds good. It does sound good. I'll just say it with confidence. <laughs> All right. Okay. So uh, next one, if you could change one thing people do on social media, what would that be? Um, I would love people not to just whinge so much. <laughs> what does whinge mean? Oh, like whine and complain. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, that would, that be, would be something. Like, um, yeah, I've unfollowed so much stuff. I generally don't scroll news feeds on social media, particularly Facebook. I don't scroll the news feed um, because of that. Um, and again, I think it's just one of those things that you, you know you get what you put out as well. So yeah, they get they get a lot of that sort of stuff. So yeah, I. Yeah, and every now and then you fall into the trap of reading the comments on something. And then, <laughs> oh, and then afterwards you just feel like I need a shower or something, you know, because yeah. it's just so toxic. Um, but, yeah, that's probably the thing that I would just love people to really think about what they're writing out there and the energy it's putting out there and also what it's attracting back to them. Yes, and you can write it and then delete it before you push send. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Like if you want to get angry about something, you can write it and then just don't actually make it public. I've done that too. Like I've um, emailed myself um, before I've actually sent something to somebody and then waited for an hour or two and then went back to it. And I'm like, I am so glad I didn't send that in the heat of the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've been there. Sometimes mm -hmm. I've sent it. Not good news. Okay. So, uh, I never, <laughs> uh, best or worst networking story. Best or worst networking story. Um, I think probably, well, it happens a lot and I was actually relaying it yesterday to somebody I think it's when you go to the dinners and before one of the other people at the table sit down, they actually go and put their business card in front of everybody's plate. Oh, it's like as if we need your <laughs> business card. I don't even know who you are. Yet. No, and no, no, no interaction, no hi, no nothing, but just walk, they walk around and put their business card in front of you. And that just repels me so much. Like for me, I don't give my card to anybody unless they ask for it. Yeah. Enough. Yes. Well, that makes sense. Hey, can I ask you an, a different question? Can I? I will ask you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's what this is about. <laughs> Podcast interview. Can you give us some advice? Because you're in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. You go to networking events. What is the etiquette and what is the preferred way to be approached? Because sometimes I've noticed people who are maybe going and they are in a wheelchair and I don't know, do I bend down to them? Do I stand up and talk from this angle? Like, you know, what are the, I, I, maybe this, am I being silly asking that question? I feel like it's, I don't know the answer. No, look, it's, it's a fantastic question. Um, and I find if it's going to be a, a quick interaction, like, 
you know, maybe a, you know, two minute conversation, then I'm like, I think it's fine to, you know, for, for, for someone else to stand. But if you sort of get the sense that it's going to be anything longer than a very quick interaction, then yeah, pull up a chair. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, pulling up a chair. Some people just kneel down and I can see how uncomfortable they are. Oh, it totally (laughs) is uncomfortable for the record. Like your knees are like out of, uh, they have no blood circulation, especially if it's a really great conversation, right? Exactly. (laughs) And it just looks uncomfortable. And so I've said to people like, it's okay, just stand up. Um, So that's good. But yeah, pulling up a chair is great. Um, Probably in a lot of, especially cocktail style stuff, there's never enough chairs around anyway. No, there aren't. Because I find it really challenging in those cocktail style events because everybody's standing up, the conversation's at another level. So it's very difficult for me to also hear. I find I come away, like I naturally talk fairly loudly and I project my voice a lot anyway, but I find I come away from those type of events feeling like my vocal cords are ripped to shreds yeah. um, because I've had to sort of really yell like that. Probably the other one if around the etiquette thing particularly um, that is an absolute no-no but so many people still do it is actually lean on my chair while they're actually speaking oh, to me. I which would be Yeah. I don't know. No, well, which would be the equivalent of you meeting someone at a networking event and them just coming and putting their either their arm around you <laughs> or resting their arm up on your shoulder um, because pretty much someone's chair is it's part of your body essentially. So, yeah, people that just do that or sometimes people will go, oh, can I just hang this on the back of your chair like your <laughs> handbag or something? I'm like, I'm not a pack horse. <laughs> Uh, yeah not. that's awful and you have a good sense of humor about it which is really sweet and yeah uh, like people don't think no and I'm not gonna go and be narky at somebody because that's unfortunately does happen and I've had people come up to me and go they've had a really bad experience with somebody who you know perhaps may have been a wheelchair user when they've actually very politely asked if they would like help or something like that and they've had their heads ripped off going oh do you think I'm useless and really angry which obviously says a lot about how they're feeling but it's pretty bad because then it actually then again we have a bad experience with a particular situation then it does impact how we respond in future situations so yeah so that's something like I'll always handle things either with humor or definitely diplomatically (laughs) Right. Definitely. And people don't necessarily know, like if they haven't been raised around it or don't have any friends who have it. So thank you for sharing with me. No, you're welcome. Okay. Awesome. And uh, before I ask the last question, see why they're not called the fast, fast, the the, the fast questions (laughs) aren't the fast questions. Um, (laughs) But where do people reach you? How do they find out more about you and how do they get your book? Yes. So pretty much you can find me anywhere by just chucking into Google Stacey Copas. Um, so S-T-A-C-E-Y and C-O-P-A-S. Um, there's not many Stacey Copasses out there and um, generally you'll find me there. Um, most active on LinkedIn and Instagram and can either, if you're into the hard copies of the book, you can get my book on Amazon um, or from any of the online retailers, um, which is probably the easiest, quickest way to get them, um, particularly other around the world. Uh, but you can actually download a free ebook version of um, how to be resilient from stacy.website. 
Stacy dot website. That's yeah. cool. Dot website. I don't even know that. No, as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, I can get my first name dot something that actually is relevant. <laughs> wow. I'm going to go to GoDaddy. That's what they mean. I'm going to GoDaddy. <laughs> go, go, yeah. go, Daddy. And go, see go, go, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, great. And I will, of course, be sure that all of that information is in our show notes so people can click uh, if they're there. And the last question, your favorite empowering quotes. Favorite empowering quote, probably the, my favorite quote from um, someone else that has been the most impactful for me and it's the one that I probably use a lot is um, a Gandhi quote that says that strength does not come from physical capability, it comes from an indomitable will and that has been the one that has been the most um, definitely impactful for me. Wow. Perfect place to leave it. Thank you. Thank Wonderful. It's your story. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure we could have spoken for another couple of hours. Oh, probably could. Yeah. And here we are opposite sides of the world. And it just goes to show people are people, right? Like the, the challenges, like the companies you're working with, the companies I'm working with, they're all going through high pace change. They're all, you know, have leaders who are resisting it or team members who are, it doesn't change. We're just on different ends of the pond. Different ends of the pond and in slightly different accents. That's about it. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, awesome. So Resiliency Ninja listeners, you know what to do. Uh, like this, share it, subscribe so you never miss an episode, but definitely tag uh, Stacy and tag me with your comments, your takeaways, uh, what you loved about this. And uh, until next time, uh, you've got this and your indomitable will. Is that indomitable? Did I say it right? Is that yeah, how I- indomitable? Because I, when I first saw it, I thought, is that actually a word? And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Okay, thank you, everyone. Have an amazing day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.